most folks think about negotiation as a battle. We get into this fight and the fight is characterized by, I'm going to try to get stuff from you that you don't want me to have. And I'm going to try to keep you from getting my stuff. And if that's how you think about negotiation, you're already in an uphill climb because I'm going to make the most malevolent interpretation of your behavior. But also what happens is that when we're in this battle mentality, then it becomes really important to win. And sometimes we end up pushing for an outcome that makes us think we have won when we forget to consider what it is we have actually won. And so if I privilege, you know, my winning this negotiation and I don't consider the long-term implications of that, then I have in fact lost. Hello everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now if I asked you to think of a business negotiation or any negotiation for that matter, Usually we would think about the TV, right? TV, films, theatres, and chances are it's a scene of high drama. It's desk banging, horn locking, hardballing battle, where someone, and usually the most aggressive one, leaves with everything and the little guy gets nothing. Now if I ask you to think back to the last negotiation you were a part of, I'm guessing it didn't look much like that. But I'm betting that it still had kind of a feeling of an edge to it. Just just an understanding and knowing that the available outcomes would fit into one of only two possible camps. The first camp being what they want, and the second camp being what you want. But is this us versus them version of negotiation due to the nature of the negotiation process itself, or the human nature that we bring to it? Now, according to my next guest, this battle-orientated framework of negotiation is as broken as it is ineffective. Professor Margaret Neal is the Adams Distinguished Professor of Management at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University, as well as Negotiation Strategies Program Co-Director of the Executive Program for Women's Leaders. Professor Neal's research focuses primarily on negotiation, and in 2015, she co-authored Getting More of What You Want – how the secrets of economics and psychology can help you negotiate anything in business and in life. Hugely tall order, but what this book does is it leverages decades of research to answer questions like who should make the first offer or how to create a compelling pitch. Now, what I love about this approach, her approach, is the definition of negotiation itself, the shifting definition away from the focus of a battle mindset, which is one I've, I've never found that comfortable or particularly effective, to one of this, finding a solution to your counterpart's problem, not yours, your counterpart's problem, that actually makes you better off than you would have been had you not negotiated. Now this flip, why is this flip important? It's important because not many of us consider ourselves crack hot negotiators right talented negotiators but most of us in one area of our lives or another would get a gold star at problem solving 
We can all solve problems. And in this episode, we jump into exactly that, solving the problems of negotiation, including how much preparation you should be doing for each negotiation. Chances are it's a lot more than you think, and here's a clue, twice as much as you're probably doing right now. The four-step structure for how to get what you want from any negotiation, including how to tackle most people's least favorite part, wait for it, the ask. Why, when heading into a negotiation, you should never solve the easy issues first. Because leaving the big hairy stuff, you know, the stuff that actually makes the difference that you know you're probably going to come up to blows over. Leaving that until last is the fastest way to end the negotiation in conflict. The differences between how men negotiate and how women negotiate. Now, I just want to press pause here for a second. This is not just hugely important for women to understand. For any men out there, for most men out there who I know want to better support the women that you lead, mentor or love in getting what they have earned, then these insights might just change the way that you approach it. And finally, how to move someone out of survival mode, including yourself, and into learning mode, which let's face it, is the only mode where solutions are not only found, but where we're open to accepting the solutions that are on offer. Right now, as, as we, including me, try to figure out what comes next in this pandemic, new rules feel like they're being written on the daily and, and everything about the old way of life has the potential to be renegotiated. Now, I know for myself, this sometimes feels like a massive opportunity. And on other days, just like the, one of the most daunting challenges I've ever faced. But here's the choice. Do you want to approach these negotiations, A, ready and set and steeled for conflict? Or B, ready to collaborate and to find a new way of doing things that is potentially bigger, brighter and fuller than the ones that you knew before? Now, if your answer is the latter, then yeah, me too. So sit back, do whatever you need to do to negotiate some time for yourself today no easy feat these days I know and enjoy my conversation with the fiercely sharp mind of Professor Margaret Miller. Welcome welcome to the podcast Maggie. Thank you thanks Julie it's great to be here. It's so nice to have you here. I want to I want to kick off the podcast with the work that you've done on the topic of, of how to get more of what you want, which I think for most people is a really important topic in, in any area of our lives. And I think especially now in, mm-hmm. in the times that we find ourselves in, which are inherently uncertain, we're, we're trying to figure out how to get our needs met. And we also have other people on this, on the other side of the line, trying to figure out how to get their needs met and, a lot of us are in survival mode. So we're interdependent. My, oftentimes I need you to help me get my needs met and you need me to help you get your needs met. That's the interdependency, which is critical um, in the kind of work that I do. Yet we don't often approach it that way, especially when we're in a fear state. So talk to me about how we, off, how we usually approach getting more of what we want or getting what we want. The, the perspective that I take is in the context of negotiation. And most, most folks... Engage, think about negotiation as a battle. And I'm, I'm going to kind of 
in caricature talk about what that means. It's sort of like we get into this fight and the fight is characterized by, I'm going to try to get stuff from you that you don't want me to have. And I'm going to try to keep you from getting my stuff. And if that's how you think about negotiation, you're already in an uphill climb because what that mindset has done is created a filter through which you evaluate your counterpart's behavior. And because negotiation is interdependent, that is, I need, you know, in order for us to get an agreement, we both have to agree, right? That's the interdependency. Then when I look at your behavior through this filter of negotiation as battle, I'm going to make the most malevolent interpretation of your behavior because you're the other, you're the enemy. You're the person who's keeping me from getting more of what I want. But also what happens um, is that when we're in this battle mentality, then it becomes really important to win. And sometimes we end up pushing and pushing for an outcome that makes us think we have won when we forget to consider what it is we have actually won. So oftentimes what happens is I want to make sure that I win in a negotiation, that I beat you. But it's very hard to figure out exactly objectively what that means. And so we can, we can behave in ways that um, may give us a short-term benefit, but a longer-term cost. Because, for example, most of us don't actually negotiate with people that we're never going to see again. Most of us are negotiating with people with whom we have a long-term or potentially long-term relationship. And so if I privilege you know, my winning this negotiation and I don't consider the long-term implications of that, uh, for my aggregate um, benefit, right, then I have in fact lost. So you, you approach it in a wholly different way. Let's talk about that. What's the, what's the alternate to, and you're right, you know, we, we do tend to approach negotiations. We literally armor up, you know, we use that language, right? I'm armoring up, I'm going in. What's the alternate? The alternative is to actually reframe how you think about negotiation and move away from this battle mindset to a mindset of collaborative problem solving. Now, when I say those three words, collaborative problem solving, most folks immediately kind of connect to that old um, kind of win-win negotiation strategy, which is, you know, and I'm going to use, I'm going to, again, use a little bit of a caricature, you know, where at the end of the negotiation, we all get a group hug and there's rainbows and unicorns and everybody's really happy. And that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about has three dimensions. The first is that as the protagonist in this negotiation, right, I am better off, better off than my alternatives, better off than my status quo, better off than had I not negotiated. Now, at first blush, that seems like a relatively low bar. And yet every one of us, you, me, the listeners, We've all said yes to a deal that made us worse off. So number one is I need to understand what's, what's a good deal for me in this particular situation. That's number one. Number two, because there is no command and control in negotiation, I need to get my counterpart to willingly walk this path of agreement with me. So I need to understand who they are, what their interests are, their preferences, what their challenges are. I need to be able to answer the question. When I make a proposal, 
why would my counterpart say yes to this? Because if I can't answer that question, I'm not ready to negotiate. And third, and most importantly, when I do make a proposal to my counterpart, I'm going to frame that proposal as a solution to a problem that they have. And that is the critical component. Because too often we get caught up in negotiation and we're thinking, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? What am I going to achieve? What am I trying to to win here? And forget the importance of the counterpart. Forget the importance of the other. And so the good news is, is that when you take this perspective, people will, people all tell you their problems all the time. And so this turns out to be a really useful metric for you to understand so that you're able to use that in, in helping craft a proposal to them that makes them think, hey, it's in my interest to say yes. But what it also requires is preparation and preparation is key. And too many folks think that they can just kind of walk in and wing it. It's like, you know, improvisational theater. Uh, Negotiation is improvisational theater. (laughs) Just not as funny. Yeah, we we know it's not as funny. And in fact, you end up being worse off because successful negotiators are master planners and preparers in advance of their negotiation. So let's let's just get practical on that for a second because I actually... A couple of questions I had for you was on this exact thing, which is preparation, because I think you're right. We don't tend to do it. If we do do it, we might just sit with a coffee for half an hour beforehand and just think through what we want to say, what we want to say about what we want. But notice, Julie, right there, we, it's like, it's all focused on the protagonist. So you're looking at that first criteria, but you haven't done the second and the third criteria. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's what we would usually do you know, spend a little bit of time thinking about what we want and how we're going to phrase what we want. What, what, what would you suggest? Is it, uh, you know, put a few hours aside a couple of days before and go through those three questions. You know, the first of them being, you know, what's my alternative? Does my alternative look better? Actually, while we're on that question, (laughs) doubling up on questions now, while we're on that question, should you actively go out and research your own alternatives so that you go into that negotiation with a cleaner energy, as in, I know what my alternatives are. I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy with them. Absolutely. You should. So as a very conservative rule, you should think about preparing twice as long as you think the negotiation will last. So if this is a, you know, a half hour negotiation, uh, you know, with your manager about how, about some issue that's important to you, then you should be prepping for an hour. But if you're negotiating a contract for your organization that's going to take you six months to negotiate, maybe you're negotiating a merger, you should be preparing for a year. I mean, these are, this is a, it's, a, it's a big commit. Um, and that's, that's what's really important is to understand. Um, and it's not just that I sit with a cup of coffee and think about it. It's that I go through a process. Um, and so, for example, from trying to figure out what I want, right, as the protagonist, uh, I need to think about my alternatives, as you suggested. And I absolutely need to understand what my alternatives are and how good they are. And I need, and this is kind of moving to the next stage, but I need to understand how good they are relative to my counterpart's alternatives. Right? Because that determines how easy it's going to be, how easy it is going to be for me to walk away. 
Can you give me an example of that? How easy they're going to be in relation to my counterpart? Well, so for example, if I have a really good, we can make a dating example, Julie. It's very, it's very simple, right? I'm long past that, but let's do it. Yes, but you know, you can imagine, right? So you can sit there and let's say that you have, you, you are very popular and lots of people ask you out. You can pick and choose among your various options here because you have really good alternatives. If your first choice decides to do something else, you have a great second choice. So it's not hard for you, right? It doesn't make, but if you haven't had a date in years, months, whatever, and somebody asks you out, you're not going to be very picky. You're going to say, yes, this is the equivalent, right? When I have good alternatives, what's going to happen is because I have a good alternative, you're going to need to really be more generous to me because my alternatives are so good. If I have, if I have your offer, your job offer, and I have a really good alternative offer, then it's going to take more for me to come to your organization. So my power in a negotiation is, is most typically characterized by how better is my alternative than my counterpart. And those folks who have better alternatives on average walk away from their negotiations with more value. But that can also backfire, right? If you, if you go into a negotiation, I'm trying to think of a better word. I can't um, almost bullshit. You know, I, I could do this, but I have, you know, three or four other awesome things that I could also do. Can that sometimes show a lack of, and this is a genuine question, a lack of commitment to this current relationship, to this current dynamic? Yes. And why necessarily is that bad? That's an interesting question. I'm not sure. Well, Julie, let me just say that you have a high, I'm going to suggest that you have an underlying hypothesis that the goal of a negotiation is to get an agreement. And if you don't get an agreement, you have failed. And I think that is just completely wrongheaded thinking. The goal of a negotiation is to get a good agreement. And if there are better agreements out there, you should be willing to walk away. And it turns out that oftentimes for women, that's a harder thing to do because we feel disloyal somehow that we're not behaving right. We're making people unhappy. And so we say yes when we should say no. And that distinction between, I'm just thinking about that for a second, that distinction between an agreement, as in you're happy and okay, I'm happy and okay, and a good agreement. Can you walk me through, just go sure. a little bit further into that distinction? Probably. So most of us actually just have a very simple view of that. Did I get my counterpart to say yes? And then we have a deal, right? So your goal in a negotiation is not to get to yes. Your goal is to get a good deal. So for example, is the proposal that you're being offered by your counterpart better than your alternative? If it's not, there's a really easy solution here. Walk away with all the grace and aplomb that you can. And that turns out to be a problem for some folks. Why is that? Well, because they've been told that success in negotiation is only achieved through an agreement. And if you are getting an agreement in every, in all of your negotiations, you're not asking for enough. So you should almost expect pushback. 
Yes, you sh- you should. And I'm not trying to make this into a battle. What I'm saying is, is that you should be asking for um, an outcome that you know is in your interest. And not just saying yes in order to get out of the interaction, to be done with the negotiation. Talk to me about fluency. Well, fluency is important because if you take this perspective of problem solving, collaborative problem solving, you see, when you think of negotiation as a battle, you've got to limit your negotiations to people with whom you're willing to fight. And that really narrows the range of possibilities. But once you transform your perspective to negotiation is collaborative problem solving, no longer do I have to pick and choose who I negotiate with based upon who I'm willing to fight. Because I'm not fighting. I'm helping us solve a problem. And so what that means is I'm going to be engaged in a lot of different types of negotiations that I would normally be because I have such a a much more open opportunity because I'm solving people's problems. I'm not fighting with them. So that requires fluency. It requires me to understand, for example, you know, I negotiate, um, you know, when I buy a car, that's one kind of negotiation. But when I'm, when I have a meeting with my doctoral students on a research topic, we have a research project. Right. That meeting is a negotiation because I've got to figure out which of my scarce resources I will contribute to this particular engagement and what do I hope to get. And they're doing exactly the same thing. So any meeting in which you wish to have influence is an opportunity for negotiation. But you're not going to take that opportunity if you think about negotiation as a battle, because who wants to be that person at the office who's always fighting with folks. The more I'm listening, the the more I can see how both become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, if you assume that one's going to be a battle, it will, because you'll go in armored up. And if you assume that it, that it's collaborative problem solving, you will do it more often. You will get better at it. And then you will want to do it more often. And then it will just become a part of, of who you're being. It's how you think about the world. Right. And that, that's, that's what I'm trying to, to really convey to folks that, you know, you need to get out of this mindset that negotiation to fight. And it's really collaboration because you bring resources to the table and I bring resources to the table. And how can we leverage that interaction such that we create value, we create synergy between you and me? You talk a lot about moving from command and control, which, you know, let's face it, is a massive myth that any of us have command and control um you know ceos don't parents don't but we do have this ability to influence we do have this ability to move you know direction of a conversation the direction of a dynamic the direction of a relationship or of a business what you have said is the key to that is understanding what somebody wants and something that i have found in my career which has tripped me up on many occasions is it's often hard to get to what people want. We are very fluent, to use the word fluency, we are very fluent in what we don't want. If you ask somebody what they want, usually you will get a list of what they don't want. If you ask yourself what you want, usually your brain will just come up with a list of what it doesn't want. Are there any tools to move past what somebody doesn't want to what they actually do want? 
I'd actually change the conversation and not be asking what do you want or what you don't want. I'd say what challenges or problems do you face? And the way that I think about this is what resources do can I bring to bear that will help you solve your problems in a way that's beneficial for me? So I'm not asking you. I'm asking you how to solve what are the problems you face and how can I help? So let's say I'm interviewing for a job, I don't know, at Stanford. And, you know, there's, the, you know, my biggest issue around the, the potential negotiation that I might engage in is what are the challenges? What, what resources do I bring to the table that make me a valuable addition to the faculty? And so what kind of problems is the, the school, the institution facing? And what are the resources that I have that can help mitigate those problems? And, you know, that's, you know, in a job interview, people do tell you the challenges the organization faces. Um, and then part of that is paying attention to what people say and thinking about how can my skills and abilities, you know, help in those, in those challenges. And that's, that's, that's kind of a different mindset, right? I'm not thinking, how can I get more money out of Stanford? I'm saying, you know, well, how can we create value together? I bring resources to the table. They have resources to the table. In bringing those resources together, what synergy can we create? And it changes the conversation and it changes the way that people think about engaging with you. What I, what I really love about your work, the, the deeper I got into it, is that it isn't about scripts. It's about, it's about having a structure. And that's something that in my career I found to be the most helpful thing to have. You know, a script won't help you when a curveball comes in, a script won't help you when things go wrong. A script won't help you when you forget the script, but a structure, a roadmap will always help you. You can keep, you know, you can keep going back to it. Now you've, you've got this great kind of four step structure to getting, to getting more of what you want. And I'll go into the first step and I'd love it if you could walk through, walk through the others. So the first one is assess the situation can I have influence on the outcome? Mm -hmm. Now, the way I interpreted that was almost kind of Buddhist in a way, you know, focus on what you can control, let go of what you can't. Is that one where you decide even whether you step into this negotiation or not? Or is it, is it something else? No, that's, I mean, what you're trying to say is, you know, is this a situation where I can have influence? Because at the very, at the, at the end of every day, at the end of every negotiation, it's all about influence. You see, I can't, there's, because there's no command and control, you know, can I have an impact? And so, you know, in most situations, of course, I think the answer for me is yes, I can, but not all. Sometimes I say, yep, that's interesting. I don't think I'm going to be able to have any influence here. But be careful, because one of the things that happens is people will oftentimes say, it's out of my span of responsibility, I can't control it, when in fact, they do have influence. You know, it's one of those things where I'm not, don't use it as an excuse not to engage. It's really important for you to understand that there are situations like, you know, that I simply cannot control. Um, but there are a lot of situations where I can have influence on people who have influence. And while I may not be able to get everything I want, I may be able to actually get something Probably the, the second one we've been through, which is prepare. And I think we've, you know, we've gone hard on that. And that metric for you know, twice as long is a really valuable one. I want to skip to the third one, which is the ask. Because I think that 
when we're heading into negotiation, that's the one that's primarily on our mind, right? How am I, how am I going to ask for this? Well, there, there's so much to say about asking because, I mean, it's actually a very interesting topic. Number one, people are afraid to ask. Um, and I'm not just talking about big negotiation asks. I'm just talking about every kind of everyday kind of things, you know, I'd like, I'd like you to do something differently. I don't, and I don't want to ask you that. So I just hope you kind of imagine or read my mind or whatever and, and do the thing I'd like you to do. I am a huge fan of asking for what you want. And there are a couple of caveats there. <laughs> if, if I don't ask for what I want, how will my counterparts ever know what it is I want? Really, I'm asking them to mind read, and people are notoriously bad mind readers. And if I don't ask for what I want, who will? So, you know, it's just really incumbent upon us to ask for what we want. Now, here's the really cool thing. People want to help you get what you want. They want to help you say yes. They want to be able to say yes to you. They want to accommodate your requests. And we dramatically underestimate how willing our counterparts, our colleagues, our spouses, our friends, strangers on the street are willing to accommodate our requests. But and there's a way of approach, right? There's a, most people are very willing to come to the party to help you get what you want, but there is, there is a way of approaching the ask. Oh, certainly there are better and worse ways to ask, but it, at the first approximation is you've got to be willing to ask. You've got to put yourself out there to say what it is that you want. All right. Remember in that collaborative problem solving perspective, the first aspect is, am I better off? Do I know what I want? What am I trying to achieve in this, with this interaction? All right. So I've got to be able to ask what, I want to be able to do is, is in the ask, in the aggregate, I'm going to try to frame that ask in a strategic way, which is if you are able to grant my request, here are the benefits for you, i.e. solve your problems, right? Mm -hmm. If we can find a way for me to come to work at Stanford, here are the resources I bring to the table that can respond to the following challenges that Stanford faces, right? I'm now changing this from, I want more money. I want, I want a bigger office. I want to, I can help you achieve your goals by my being here. So here's my request. Here is my request. And if we are able to meet that request in some way, then these are the resources that I'm able to bring, or this is the benefit to you. This is the value to you. And these are the resources that I need in order to achieve a solution to a problem that you have. And it occurs to me that, you know, often one of the hardest things about a negotiation is actually getting somebody to the table to have the negotiation. Why is that, Julie? Why is that? <laughs> because it's a fight. You see, if you step away from this notion of negotiation as a battle, it's not hard to get people to come to the table with you because they, you're helping them solve their problems. This frame of request to go to somebody and to be able to say, look, I'd like to sit down with you. I have a request to make, but I also have some ideas around how, you know, I can benefit you, the resources that I can bring, you know, that's going to get someone to the table. Actually, I do it slightly differently. I'd say, 
I have some, I have some potential solutions to some problems that we face. And I'd like to have a conversation with you about that and about the resources I need to solve those problems. Mm, I love that. I almost feel like just pausing for 20 seconds while somebody writes that down. You'll just have to pause the podcast because it would be silly for us <laughs> to sit here for 30 seconds. Um, but please write that down. I want, let's just keep moving because we've got, we've got the ask. Mm-hmm. The next bit, which was point four, which was packaging. Yes. Packaging up. And you you said really clearly, do not negotiate issue by issue. Why is that? Well, part of the problem is this is why research is so important. So I'm going to give a, I'm going to give a little boost to research, and that is most of us think that the way to approach a negotiation is to simply take an issue, resolve it, and move to the next issue. And it seems that way because that seems like a very simple and straightforward way to kind of walk through a negotiation problem. But what you have done by that strategy is you have destroyed value. You have destroyed the potential synergy that might exist between you and your counterpart. And the reason you have is because synergy comes when there are differences in preference across issues. So there may be issues that you care more about and issues that I care more about. And so the synergy comes when we are able to, when I'm able to give you what you care more about and I get more of what I care about. And so rather than thinking of just, you know, taking a a knife and slicing something down the middle, what we're doing is we're creating what the economists refer to as gains through trade, right? I really like issue A. You are really concerned about issue B. The more I get on A, the more I'm willing to give you on B. And that's where value creation occurs. Now, the problem is, is you've got to be negotiating both A and B at the same time. And so as a result, you need to package. You know, too often we are caught up, we, you know, there, there, people have told us how we should negotiate. There's like, you know, all this kind of uh, uh, conventional wisdom. And so one of the most common strategies in negotiation is solve the easy issues first. Everybody's been told that, you know, people have, I can tell you from observing negotiators negotiate, they think that's a really cool idea. This is a bad idea. This is a, such a bad idea. It is empirically an opportunity for value destruction. And the reason is because, well, there's about three reasons, but here, here's the first one. Solve the easy issues first. Actually, the reason we do that is because it binds us to the agreement, the potential agreement as it evolves. And the problem with that is that that is only useful if your goal is to get to yes, not to get a good deal, but to basically force yourself and your counterpart into some agreement rather than thinking about what a good deal is. Right. So number one is that solve the easy issues first, bind you to agreement that may not actually be in your interest. Number two, solve the easy issues first. Okay, we solve the easy issues. What's left? The really ugly 800-pound gorilla. And we now, all we can do is fight about it. We've got nothing to trade. And so the, the end of the negotiation ends on a fight. And so number one, we might not be able to reach agreement. But even if we were to reach agreement, the emotional experience is so negative 
that we are unlikely to want to negotiate with each other again. And third, and probably most importantly, solve the easy issues first assumes that your easy issues are my easy issues. What if they're not? What if I really care more about issue A than B, so I give away issue B? It's an easy issue for me, but it turns out to be really important to you. I have lost some leverage here. I could trade my concession on B, which I was already willing to do in order to get more on A. And you might be quite willing to make that trade. That might be a value enhancing trade for you as well. But if I just give you B, I lose that potential. So you need to think about this as a package. And when you think about it, Crafting a package that reflects our unique contributions to the challenge that we're facing, that even sounds like problem solving. Much more than, well, you won the last one and now it's my turn. Can you give me, give me an example of a package? So I am negotiating a potential position in an organization. I'm a researcher. So what are things that are important to me? Uh, money for my research. Now, interestingly, uh, I'm an academic, so my success as a researcher, getting studies published, getting those studies um, to be influential, helps my organization because they get kind of benefit from the fact that I'm a good researcher and this is, that, makes, that gives them a sense of reputation as well. Um, I need uh, resources for my doctoral students. I need monies for them to... Um, go to conferences. I need uh, money for them for their research projects. Um, I need the opportunity for um, them to have uh, the ability to have a broad uh, set of co-authors. All of those things are going to help my doctoral students do better, which will in fact in turn benefit the reputation of the school. Um, I need uh, a really good computer system uh, in order to be able to analyze the data. I need to be able to work from home in order to be able to maximize my ability to write so that I can write good papers that are going to be well-received. Um, so what I've just done in that, con in that monologue with myself, because this is not how I would go to my counterpart, I have just thought, okay, what is it that I need and what are the potential solutions to problems my counterpart faces? So I negotiate with my dean who is concerned about the school's ability to place their doctoral students, who is concerned about the reputation, research reputation of the institution, who is concerned about the skill in teaching, and I can help on all of those dimensions with these resources. So you would go into that negotiation rather than, you know, talking about each of those things you mentioned individually, you would go in as a bundle and say, these are all the things that I need. Mm -hmm. These are all the reasons that they, that it benefits you, that it solves yeah. a problem that you have. Mm -hmm. And then you talk about using if then language. Well, what happens is, remember, it's an interdependent process. And most likely your counterpart is going to think that the right way to negotiate is issue by issue. So you're going to present this beautiful package and they're going to say, let's talk about uh, your new computer system. And I'm like, let's go back up to the package. And they're like, let's talk about, the money for research. And you go, let's go back to the package, right? So what happens is there's kind of middle ground. And the middle ground is 
what I, what I talk about is the if-then strategy. So um, it's basically, here are the concessions I'm willing to make if I get the following concessions from you, right? It's yoking those issues together where there are potential gains from trade. And so while I'd like to do it at the package level, I may be limited to just two because, you know, one of the things that you, that you learn as you become a more effective negotiator is that you spend a lot of your time helping people figure out how to get a better deal for themselves. Your counterparts get a better deal for themselves because they learn how to create value and not just claim it. So it's kind of an educational process. And so, you know, you help them figure out that maybe when you have two issues negotiating simultaneously, you get a little better outcome than if we did one at a time. And then it makes it easier to get to the package level. So just going back to that if-then language for a second. So you would say, you know, you're pulling people back up to the package. No, let's not worry about the, the individual issues. I want to talk about the package. Talk to me again about the if-then, how that, how that relates. So what would ha- typically happen is somebody would say, well, you know, let's, um, I think that your subject monies are too, there's, there's too much money for subjects here, and we just can't really have that kind of research budget. And then you said, okay, well, if you can, if you can give me, a, if you can see a way to give me the kind of computer system I'm looking for, then I'm willing to concede on that research budget. Right. So you're solving two issues at once. Yes. Mm -hmm. So obviously the money is more perhaps, and you know, who knows, perhaps the actual dollars are the problem, not the, the systems there may, they may have, you know, maybe, maybe Stanford has a lot of computer power and a limitation on, on faculty research dollars. Maybe. Right. And I see part of my planning preparation. I should know the answer to that question before I even make the proposal. I've gathered the information to say, okay, what's easy for Stanford to say yes to what's hard for Stanford to say yes to. I think that's just a really good question to add into your prep. What would be easy for them to agree to? What would not be easy for them to agree to? I want to actually go into a different topic just for a second. I want, I want to go into the difference between men and women as negotiators. Now, I think that, that this is just a really important one to look at because this, the stories and the data are so at odds. And I believe that the only way we're going to support ourselves and the women in our lives, be it the, the women that you love, the women that you work with, in getting more of what they want and have earned is by breaking those differences down and just, and just really looking at them. It, really, it hit me when I heard you when I heard you talk about the difference in challenging calls in men's and women's tennis, I had a bit of an aha moment. Then can you go into that, that example? So that, that actually turns out um, at the, the grand slam tennis tournament in the U S um, and it was about, I think it was in the original one was like in 2006 or seven. I don't have the, the study in front of me right now, but it was in the, in the early, in sort of the early 2000s. And what they did was they had gotten, just gotten new technology where they could have instant replay of the of the calls and so tennis players were allowed a limited number of challenges to the judges calls and they then they basically made sure that there were equivalent numbers of challenges given the numbers of games played so men's men's um, competition had more games than women's did so the men in the aggregate had more challenges they could make than the women did but they controlled for the number of games played how likely were people to, how likely were men or women to challenge a call? It turns out 
that about one third of the challenged calls were adjudicated in the favor of the tennis player, two thirds for the referee. Okay, so no difference by gender. But what they found was is that controlling for the number of games played, men were three times more likely to challenge a call than were women. Now, what, when I talk about this study, what I say is, or the, not the study, this was simply a, 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 uh, a description of the statistical experience, right? What I say is, well, maybe it's the case that women's tennis is slower, so judges don't make as many mistakes. Maybe. Maybe the judges of women's tennis are watching the players much more closely than they are watching the men's players. Maybe. Or maybe there's a difference in willingness to ask, to simply say, I challenge that call. And this is, this is actually in keeping with, you know, historically what people have talked about um, as the, one of the biggest gender differences in negotiation, and that is women's unwillingness to ask. So, you know, women don't ask. Negotiation and the gender divide. That was a book by... Um, uh, Linda Babcock and Sarah Lashabir back in um, 2003. What they were arguing was is that they observed a hesitancy in women to initiate a negotiation, and for good reason, because women get pushback. Women get backlash when they ask. So let's say that we're negotiating. Uh, you're a potential employer of mine. I am a female. You and I negotiate. Whatever words I use, whatever demands I make, let's now, in a, di in a sort of a different world, put you, the same person, and me, now I'm not a woman anymore, I'm a man, and I say exactly those same words, I have exactly the same engagement with you, but the only difference is, in, in situation one, I'm a woman, in situation two, I'm a man. You're going to find a difference in your response to my requests. You're not going to find it a problem if men negotiate, but you're going to find the fact that I, as a woman, am negotiating because you're going to perceive me as more greedy, demanding, and not nice. And why and is that? Is that, is that an age-old story of, of women just being more, more accommodating, the, that we should be more accommodating? No, it's that we should be more accommodating. If you, if you if kind of distill a lot of the research about um, the socialization of women, what you find is that women are supposed to make people feel good. And by the way, it's not men, it's men and women, right? Men and women feel uncomfortable. And, you know, and, and we have been, you know, working with, we have been working on this problem, but it turns out that it's not as simple as women not asking. Were it only that simple, because then we just have to say, okay, women, ask, and we'd be done. But we have some recent research that's, that's currently under, um, under review, so it's not published yet. So I'm going to give you a little kind of preview of that. And it, it, what we did was we were able to get, we, we actually collected data for three years, um, and we had people negotiate an exercise, uh, uh, an exercise on an employment negotiation. And what we did was we, we looked at, they either had, had relatively good or relatively poor alternatives. Okay, so we've talked a lot in this podcast about alternatives. So we had Half the people had really good alternatives. Half the people had relatively poor alternatives. And then we had about a third of the, of the, of the negotiating pairs were female-female. 
a third of the negotiating pairs, a little bit less than that, were um, were male-female, and, and the rest of them were male-male. And everybody had, you know, so it was completely, you know, we had people with high alternatives negotiating with people with high alternatives. We had people with low alternatives negotiating with people with high alternatives and negotiating with people with low alternatives. So all possible combinations. We had people from a variety of different countries. Um, we had people, we had both MBA students, executives, uh, working folks. We had people negotiating face-to-face. So we had people negotiating virtually. We had hundreds of dyads, um, actually thousands of dyads. And when we analyzed the data, we found something very interesting. What we found was, as you might expect, when you had better alternatives, on average, you got more than when you had poor alternatives. Why? It's easier to walk away, gives you more of a sense of power, and therefore you extract more value in the negotiation. That's fine. But we also found that when men or women had poor alternatives, uh, both parties, there really was no difference in how they performed. But when men and women had good alternatives, men actually got better outcomes and women got worse outcomes. So what happened was, is that when a woman with a good alternative was negotiating against anybody with a low alternative. She did better, okay? Male or female or counterpart, right? But when a woman was negotiating with somebody with a good alternative, so they both, a woman with a good alternative, her counterpart had a good alternative, regardless of whether they were male or female, what happened is that she was six times more likely to have that negotiation end in impasse. Well, that's a big difference. A man with a good alternative, his negotiation did not end in impasse. They got a deal, and that deal was better for him because he had a good alternative. We then said, okay, well, maybe what happens is that these women with good alternatives are being really much more aggressive and demanding than men with good alternatives. And we did a second study where we looked at a large sample, and what we found was no difference. The aspiration of these uh, men and women with good alternatives, there was no difference between them. There was no difference between the, the bottom line that both of these parties indicated that would be the least they would accept. So what we found was, is that what we were actually trying to test two different hypotheses. One is, is the reason that women do worse in negotiation because they are tamer? That is, they capitulate. So I have a good alternative, but I'm trying to avoid conflict. So I take an alternative. I take an outcome that's worse than my alternative. I don't take advantage of my alternative. Or is it that I, in fact, have a good alternative? I engage in ways that are consistent with having a good alternative, and there is a backlash against me. And our research suggests it is the latter explanation. It's not that women accept less. Now, in this, in our study just to, to sort of bring it back to women don't ask. We were in a situation where folks were, because of the nature of the, of the education environment, people negotiate. There wasn't an option not to negotiate. So everybody was going to negotiate. So we can't, we can't talk to you in this study 
about whether women were more or less likely to negotiate than men because it was a class or it was a, an executive education session or it was a, a negotiation training program and everybody negotiated. But what we do know is when women have good alternatives, there is a backlash against them. So what this suggests is move away from negotiation as a battle, go to collaborative problem solving, get out of that mindset of a fight and it will mitigate the backlash. Now you, one of the things I found surprising when I was, when I was thinking about that study before, before now is that something you often hear framed as a weakness within women when they negotiate is that we're more likely to ask for others than ourselves. But that's actually quite a strength when it comes to the type of negotiating that, you, that we're talking about here, because the way that you languaged it was aligning their competence with communal orientation, which I took to mean and correct me, focusing the ask around how my skills are going to help you, the organization and my team do better. So that's certainly one way. But here's another thing. So let's make it clear. So that, that asking with a communal orientation is that collaborative problem-solving approach. Okay, now that's number one. Number two, think about whether I'm negotiating for myself or I'm negotiating for my team. And the research is quite clear that when negotiating for self, men outperform women. And that's, you know, that, that's a pretty consistent finding. There may be a lot of reasons for that, but that finding is pretty clear. But when people are negotiating for others, I'm negotiating for my team, I'm negotiating for my organization, women outperform men between 14 and 22%. Because you see what happens as soon as I'm negotiating for others, nobody is going to accuse me of being greedy, demanding, and not nice, right? Look at her. She's so amazing. Look what she got for the team. Look what she did for us. Nobody says, what a jerk. So we take off that social pressure and we see that in fact, women are actually very effective negotiators. Mm. Statistically better negotiators when framed as collaborative problem solving. And statistically better when they negotiate for others. So let me just say here, that if you are somebody who is thinking about hiring someone in your organization and they need to negotiate, which of course everybody does, you might want to think, maybe if I'm asking people to negotiate for, on behalf of the organization, I might should hire more women. I want to talk about Sal now. <laughs> <I want, laughs> while, we're talking, while we're talking about women negotiating, I want to talk about Sal. And and the practice of not following your own advice, which I am so glad that I'm the only one that, that doesn't do that. You, yes. tell, me, tell me about that relationship. Well, first, let's talk about who Sal is. So Sal is my horse, and um, I'm actually uh, an avid horsewoman. I have um, four horses uh, that are mine. We have more horses on the property, but they're not all mine. The four that are mine. Um, Sal and I have had a complex relationship. Um, I've had her since she was a four-year-old. She's now 19. So for 15 years, we've had a complex relationship. When I heard you talk about Sal, you talked about this moment where you were on her back and she was rearing. Yes. And you were trying to get her to do what you wanted her to do. And she was obviously frightened and 
doing yes. her best to communicate that this wasn't in her plan. And you said this, and I just thought it was such interesting language. You said on the third rear, you abandoned her. Mm-hmm. And it got me thinking, and I thought, you know, as human beings, we rear, right? We have our own versions of rearing up. We raised emotion. We raise our voices. We, we go into anger, frustration. And I know for myself that I've abandoned many people, many conversations and many potential outcomes in those moments when someone starts to rear up. Mm-hmm. And you said that in that moment, you realized you had to be a leader and you had to move Sal out of survival mode and into learning mode. How do you do that in that moment where you're in a negotiation and you feel someone start to rear or they're in the middle of rearing? How do you move that situation back into learning mode? Well, part of it is you have to assess how, where, what the level of emotionality is at the moment. And too often we self-instruct that we need to just push through. And this was part of my problem with Sal. Let me just get there, get to that point that I want right now, this moment. And sometimes the best strategy is let's take a break. Let's step back. Let's think about what our superordinate goal is here. Now, this is why I mean, I can't say that to Sal, but I could say that to my counterpart who might be human, right? But the point is, is that let's take a step back because we're not, we're not moving forward and maybe we need to take a break, reconsider what we've heard and come back for another conversation. Because sometimes trying to push through the emotions just puts people in a position where they have to defend their behavior. And then, you know, part of the other issue is, you know, sort of like when, when I realized with Sal that I, it was me who was the one who was causing the problem. Not her. It was me. And I had to change my ways. So we need to think carefully about whether, you know, whether, what, what amount of the problem is from us. And be serious about that. You know, what, what am I doing here? In fact, oftentimes when, when I'm teaching and I talk to people about emotions in negotiation, one of, the things I, one of the things I say is you really just can't, you can't suppress your emotions. You can't just tamp them down, right? Because what happens is you spend all of your cognitive effort tamping down those emotions and you lose your ability to problem solve. So what you need to do is take a break and say, okay, why, is, why did this happen? You know, what, what about what I did and what about the, their response to what I did or my response to what they did that is causing this escalation? Why is it pushing a button? You know, what is it going on? And what are we trying to achieve? What's the larger reason that we're in this together? Why are we at the table right now? I think what you said there that was really important was coming back to your intention, taking the time and space that you need, having the leadership either over yourself or over the situation to take the time and space that you need to come back to your original intention. What is my intention here? What is my intention for this interaction? What is my intention for this relationship? What is my intention for this evening? Is it to make your life hell or is it to to have a good night? And here's the other thing. What are you trying to achieve? And I come back to that question a lot, both in my own experience, in my own life. And I also spend a lot of time with my students and my colleagues And I say to them, and they say to me, what are you trying to achieve? What's your goal here? 
And is this behavior pushing that goal forward or blocking that goal? Well, I'm going to finish, finish up with, with a question. I like to call this the one thing because I, f I feel like over the, the course of, of my career, either working with thought leaders or, or leaders or influencers in any capacity, if you can do something like today and be on a podcast for, for an hour, if somebody takes one thing and implements it, that's a, that's a good use. That's a good use of an hour. What's the, if you got to direct that process and if there's one thing out of everything we've talked about today or that we might not have mentioned that if somebody went off tomorrow and implemented it, that would be the most important one thing to put into place. What would it be? Reframe how you think about negotiation. And everything we talked about flows from that. That is sort of the thing you need to, to consider. Why am I thinking of negotiation as a battle? I'm negotiating mostly with people with whom I have or have the potential for relationships. So let's see if we can solve problems rather than fight. Maggie, thank you so much for your time and your work and your research and everything that you're contributing to this conversation. It's been an honor. Well, thank you, Julia. It's a delight to spend time with you. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com pop in your email address it is free we will not spam you but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that i have come across in 10 years of doing this work it's called the influencer code it's not long but it is full of value so download it keep it share it juice it for all it is worth i hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.